Years ago, there was a man that was in a pretty influential position, and a lot of people knew him. And he did not use very good discretion, and he ended up having an affair on his wife. And it was quite an embarrassment to, to the country. And we read in Second Samuel chapter 12, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said, Now David doesn't know what's going on yet. And Nathan's telling David a story. And he says, he says um, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except for one little ewe lamb which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David hears this story about this great injustice that's been done in his kingdom. And the Bible says that David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man that has done this shall surely die. And David, uh, Nathan looked at David and said, You are the man. And just like an arrow, it went straight to David's heart. And he was convicted of this sin that he had been covering up and trying to hide from everyone. And unlike Saul, when he was confronted blamed it on the people for making this great sacrifice. David says in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And so Nathan came to David, who was on his way to hell at this point, and talked to him about it and corrected him. And that's what I would like to talk about this morning, is us talking to each other and to people who need to be talked to. When Cain killed his brother Abel, uh, God came to Abel and he said, he said, where's your brother? And Cain, trying to shirk off his responsibility, asked, uh, you know, if a teenager said it, I would consider this a smart aleck question. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, the Bible doesn't even answer that because the answer is obvious. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning is talking to someone that needs to be talked to. A lot of what I'm going to tell you I don't need to tell you, you already know, but it'll just be a reminder. But Peter wrote Second uh, Peter to the people, and he said, I'm writing this to stir up your minds, though you know these things already. So let's look at a few things about talking to other people. Number one, it's our duty to do so. It's a good thing when we talk to other people when they're sinning. Proverbs 25, verse 11 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver, like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold that is a wise reprover, is a wise reprover to an obedient ear. When, as scared as we may be to talk to somebody, when we can say the right word at the right time, whether it's a compliment, a word of encouragement, or a word of admonishment, it's a good thing. It's not something that we should, should be afraid of. We're commanded to talk to each other. A lot of times we want to say, well, that's none of my business, or live and let live, or let his wife talk to him about it, or the elders, or I'm not going to get involved. But as Christians, that's not the way we're supposed to be. 
Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15, Jesus says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you as a heathen and a tax collector. So Peter or Jesus says that when someone's sinning, we're supposed to deal with it. We're not supposed to ignore it. We don't think very highly. You go to Walmart and some little kid is acting up and screaming and running through the clothes and knocking things over and the parents are just over there shopping. We don't think fairly highly of those parents. We come to church and we say, man, I was at Walmart the other day and you wouldn't believe what I saw. How does God look at his church when there's something going on and, and we're just sitting there just twiddling our thumbs like it's not going on and here we've got something that needs to be dealt with. In Ezekiel chapter 33, God tells, uh, who's he talking? I guess it's Ezekiel talking to him. Let's see what I'm looking for. He says, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people. And say to them, When I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, when he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. Kind of like when the tornado sirens go off, and you sit there watching TV, and the tornado blows you away, nobody feels sorry for you. You kind of brought it on yourself. It says in verse 5, He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But he who takes warning will save his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman, for the house of Israel. And we as Christians are watchmen for the house of God, for the church. We are our brother's keeper. Often we see something going on or a sin in someone's life and we say, and we think to ourselves, I, I'm not qualified. I, I don't know how to talk to people. Uh, you know, we, we need to call an evangelist or, or get an elder or somebody up. That's not my job. In Romans 15 and verse 14, Paul wrote to the Romans. And he said, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you are also full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. To admonish somebody means to correct them, just like we admonish our kids. They do something wrong, sometimes they say, you're not going to have a lot of friends if you act that way. That's not really a good way to act. Sometimes we, we correct them, we, we go a step further and we discipline them. Sometimes we ground them for several weeks. But Paul said, 
And as parents, none of us, most of us are not afraid to do that. We realize that's our job. Other parents do it, and we know the results if we don't do it. Paul says, I'm confident concerning you that you're full of goodness and knowledge, and you are able to admonish each other. There's a man named Jay Adams, and he even wrote a whole book on this, and he calls it Competent to Counsel. Someone's involved in, in, a, in adultery or alcoholism or drugs or pornography, and we say, uh, we need to get them with an expert. Paul says, no, I'm confident that you are able to admonish one another. And that's a scary thought because that puts the responsibility on us. But it also should be an encouragement. You know, um, of course, I'm proud of all my grandkids, but I'm especially proud of Adelaide because Danielle, ever since Adelaide was little, uh, some of you may look on Danielle and go, man, what a parent. And that's the way I look at Danielle sometimes. I say, my goodness. But you know, when Adelaide was one year old, and just learning I think they learned to walk at one, one and a half. I can't remember when. Danielle had a bed that was about this high. And Adelaide, at one year old, could scooch over to the edge of the bed, you know, I guess kind of like this, and she would get that sheet in each hand, and she would kind of wad it up until she had a wad of sheet, and she would hold on, and she would slide over that bed, and she would let herself down, and that bed was high, taller, as tall as she was. And I was impressed the little kid could do something like that. I mean, I've seen Danielle numerous times. She'd tell Danielle, sometimes it seems pretty hard, harsh. She'd say, Adelaide will want help with something. And Danielle will say, well, if, you're not gonna, if you can't do it, I'm not going to help you. And Adelaide will sit there and do it till she can. And that's what Paul is saying about us as Christians. He says, you can do it. I'm confident that you are able to admonish each other. You don't need experts. As a matter of fact, a lot of the experts don't believe this book here. So what you think, what we're thinking is, I've got the word of truth and I know the truth, but I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to let this Christian that's sinning go to someone who's not a Christian for advice. Paul says, no, no, you are able to admonish one another. We're capable. So we're commanded to do it. And God says that we are able to admonish each other. But we've got to do it with the right attitude. Not the attitude we have on 635 when someone pulls in front of us. What do we want then? Then we're mad and we want to get revenge and we want to show them and kind of we want to win this argument. And it's easy to get that attitude with a husband or wife or a fellow Christian. But we've got to have the right attitude. James says in James chapter 5 that if we... Uh, Let's see here. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death. We will save someone from hell. And when we talk to someone, that should be what we want to do. Not to win an argument, not to make them feel bad, not to make them look like a fool, not to embarrass them in front of other people. We should be interested in their soul. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, where it's talking about dealing with the brother that's sinning, it says, don't count him as an enemy, but as a brother. 
We're on the, when we're on the highway and someone makes us mad, we're not thinking of that person as a brother. We're not worried about hurting his feelings. As a matter of fact, that may be what we want is to hurt him. Paul says when we're dealing with a Christian, that, that we should count him as a brother and not an enemy. In Matthew chapter 18, where we read, where Paul talks, or Jesus talked about going and talking to someone, says, if he will hear you, you have gained your brother. And that's what we want. We always run the risk of making someone mad or maybe losing a friendship. But the end goal should be to gain our brother and to save their soul from hell. In Leviticus chapter 19, beginning in verse 17. It says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It says that we shouldn't be seeking vengeance. We shouldn't have a grudge. We should go to somebody with the right attitude. And the last thing I want us to remember about ourselves, uh, about our duty to talk to a fellow Christian is that it's good for us. In Proverbs chapter 24, beginning in verse 24, it says, He who says to the wicked, You are righteous, him the people will curse, nations will abhor him, but those who rebuke the wicked will have delight, and a good blessing will come upon them. In Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 23, it says, He who rebukes a man will find more favor afterward than he who flatters with his tongue. You know, if you go to the doctor because you've got a stomach ache, you want to know what the cause is so you can deal with it. I think I mentioned the fireman that was that I used to work with. He's about my age, and he had indigestion for a long time. He was taking antacids, and his stomach just kept giving him trouble. And he finally went to the doctor about it, and he had, uh, I think it was pancreatic cancer, and two weeks later he was dead. You know, if I've got a problem, I want to know what it is. The doctor's not doing me any favor if I've got a stomach ache. And I go to him and say, oh, that's nothing. It'll go away with time. Here, just take this medicine. And two weeks later, I'm dead of cancer. That doctor did me a lot of harm. As bad as the news is, as much as I don't want to hear that I've got cancer, if I've got it, I want to know it so I can deal with it and be cured and live. If I've got sin in my life, that's what I want. Forgive me if I've told you this story, but this was a real important thing in my life. I think I told this story not too long ago. Years ago, I was with Jerry McCorkle in, uh, I think Bartle, no, it was up in Arkansas, Blytheville, Arkansas. Jerry was holding a week-long meeting up there, and I think Merle came up to join us for a few days. He went up there the whole time. And I was 20, 21, and there was this girl there in the uh, congregation. She was probably in her teens, and I don't remember now what the problem was, but she had some developmental delay. She was a little bit slow, and she had a crush on me. And I wasn't interested in her. And one day, Jerry and Merle and I were out driving or something and talking, and Merle said something about this girl liking me, and I said something kind of disparaging about a fellow Christian. 
and Merle, and I didn't know Merle real well at this time. We had not, I mean, we knew each other, but I had not spent a lot of time with him. Got on to me right there in front of Jerry. He didn't even pull me aside. And I don't remember what he said. And I don't remember what I said. But 37 years later, Merle Fielder is one of the greatest men I ever knew. It says in one of these verses we just read that he who rebukes the wicked will find favor. And 37 years later, I'm not telling you about Pat Manning or Truman Till or any other of these good men I could tell you about. I'm telling you about somebody that got on to me when I needed it. I admire Merle for several reasons. One, he cared enough about me to say something. One, he was brave enough to do something. You know, he could have made me mad and I could have just never had anything to do with him again. I could have left the church. But here I was saying something bad about a fellow Christian and he was brave enough to correct me. He wasn't embarrassed either. He wasn't shy or timid. He took care of what needed to be done. And now I look up to Merle just like you look up to Merle also. Not because he did something good for me, because he did something that embarrassed me. But in the long run, it was good for me. It's good for us when we're brave enough to talk to a fellow Christian. So let's go over real quickly the different types of confronting someone. In Matthew chapter 18, we already read, it says, If your brother sin against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, it says, If you take your gift before the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, go and deal with it before you worship God. doesn't matter if he did something to you, you did something to him. You need to take care of it before you worship God. Between you and him alone. But what do we usually do? You know what? You know what he did to me the other day? You know what Kent did to me? Did you hear what Kent did to me? And I never go to Kent. Therefore, the problem never gets worked out. How often do we talk about problems instead of going between me and him alone? I know I do that all the time. I know of a situation in the church where there was a, an apparent problem between two families. And whether a letter should have been written, I don't know, but this person thought that maybe that would be the best way to approach it. Wrote a letter saying, is there a problem? Have we done something? Put it in the mailbox. Well, the people get the letter, the Christians get the letter. Ring, ring, ring. Hello, elder. They sent me a letter. They said that they think I'm mad at them. The elder calls this family over here and says, are you mad at them? Or uh, he said that he's never done anything to you and he's not mad at you. Now what the person that got the phone call says, is this the Bible way to handle this? This was just between me and him. So everybody did it wrong here. It was between me and him. And we should have dealt with it and not got an elder involved. The Bible says here in Matthew chapter 18, if he will not hear you, then go tell the church. No, that's not what it says. If he won't hear you, go and get two or three others. Let in the mouths of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Well, I said, well, he said, well, I said, no. The two or three witnesses said, no, this is the way it happened. And then, of course, if the person is so stubborn or so caught up in sin, or has so much pride that they don't want to deal with it, then you take it before the church. And that's what we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Another reason we want to deal with something, whether or not the person wants to cure the problem or not, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 
Paul explains that a little leaven leavens a whole lump. If you're making bread, you put in two or three or four cups of flour. You put in sugar and I don't remember what else. But all you got to do for the yeast is just a little bitty package of yeast. And you put it in this big, I can't think of the word, all this dough and mix it in and this yeast spreads. And you go back after a few hours and you knead it and you spread that yeast throughout. And pretty soon that whole loaf of, of dough is leavened. When we ignore sin in the church, another Christian looks at it and goes, well, he's doing it, it must be okay. And then he gets involved. And pretty soon, the sin that only one person was committing, since no one's dealt with it, pretty soon it's spread through the church and become a problem. And we see this in the denominations. Uh, they're afraid. They want, they want everyone to come in. They don't want to offend anybody. They want everyone to be welcome. And so everyone comes in with their sins, and the sins are never dealt with. It's not a good thing. So there's different ways of dealing with a sinning brother, private. And the good thing about this is usually that will take care of it. Very, very, very seldom have I ever seen where it needed to have two or three witnesses. Of course, there have been a lot of times maybe that I just didn't know about because they took two or three witnesses and kept it quiet and got it dealt with that way. But I don't know if I've ever seen an instance where it went so far it had to be taken to the church. Usually by the time you get through steps one and two, either the person's repented or he realizes uh, the church's stand on a particular sin or whatever and he leaves the church himself. So we need to go and take care of it between us. The reason we need to do this, several reasons. One, we just talked about a little leaven leavens a whole lump. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says that he may be ashamed. You know, a lot of times if we're doing something and we think no one cares, no one knows, then we're not embarrassed. And we find out that other people know when people start kind of coming down on us and putting the pressure on us, then we're embarrassed and we feel ashamed. And that's when we'll change. And that's what we hope. There's also other types of uh, admonition. There's when parents admonish their children. Bible says in Proverbs chapter, or I don't remember what chapter says, he that doesn't discipline his son doesn't love him. It says, but he that loves his son chastens him often. There's also where elders might need to deal with a, a problem in the church. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, Paul says to shepherd the church of God. But I want to concentrate mainly this morning on, on us talking to each other. And this next point I want to make is not biblical, or it's not from the Bible, but I think as I describe it, you'll see that it's very biblical. Every relationship that we have is like a bank account. In a bank account, you're not using the bank's money, you're using your money. You work, get a paycheck, deposit that money, and now you can write checks or use your debit card, and whoever you authorize to get the money, the bank will send your money to them. Now, if you write too many checks... Deposit two thousand dollars and you write checks for three thousand. Now you got a big problem because you're overdrawn. The bank's going to start charging you late fees. If you don't take care of it, you can get in legal problem because you try to take out more than you put in. Every relationship is like that. We do good things for people and we do bad things. We say something nice. We give flowers to our wife. We compliment someone. We help somebody move. 
we um, just do countless little things. And we're making deposits into this bank account. And sometimes we screw up. We forget an anniversary. We're late to an appointment. We lose our temper. Uh, maybe we tell a lie and get caught. And that's a withdrawal. Now, if we've made enough deposits, that person's going to say, you know, you do something wrong, uh, you lose your temper, and you say, oh, I'm real sorry. I, I shouldn't have said that. I lost my temper. Don't worry about it. It's okay. Why does the person say, don't worry about it. It's okay. Because they remember all the good things that you've done. And they've got all these good memories of you. And you've done so much for them. And your relationship is so good. You made a lot of deposits into this bank account. So when you make a withdrawal, you're covered. Don't worry about it. It's okay. Now, if a person's always late, always forgetting stuff, always lying to you, always rude to you, when they walk in the room, you're already upset because they've made so many withdrawals from this relationship, they're already overdrawn. They just almost can't do anything right. So before we talk to someone, we might want to consider if we've made enough deposits into this relationship. You know, sometimes I'm not the best person to talk to somebody because he and I don't get along. Maybe you're the best person because y'all have a good relationship. You have made a lot of deposits. We need to consider this. That's why nagging is so bad. Just constant, constant withdrawals, constant bad things, no compliments, no encouragement, just nagging, nagging. And the attitude of the other person is, shut up, I don't even want to hear it. Now, that's not a right attitude. But if you've made all these withdrawals from this relationship, they don't really want to hear what you have to say anymore. If you've made a lot of deposits, and just like Merle Fielder, and they come to you, you want to hear what they say. And even if it hurts, you're going to be thankful. And we as parents need to remember this. Sometimes we're so busy correcting our children, correcting, 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 getting on to them. It just becomes nagging. We've got to remember to make these deposits so when we make a withdrawal, we're still covered. So why don't we talk to each other more? You know, I've heard it said that some people are so tactful, they don't make any contact. Oh, I don't want to hurt his feelings. I don't want to ruin our relationship. He might not take it well. And that's true. Proverbs chapter 9, verses 7 and 8 says, He who reproves a scoffer gets shame for himself. And he who rebukes a wicked man gets himself a blemish. Do not reprove a scoffer lest he hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. We don't talk to people when we need to because there's a risk. They might not take it well. They might get mad at us. Might ruin a friendship. They may say something bad about us. And just like here where it talks about either talking to a scoffer or a wise man, we think that we can talk to someone, but we're not sure how they're going to take it. And so we don't take the risk. Sometimes it's just apathy. We just don't care. And shame on us if we're that way. John asked a question in First John. It says, if we don't love our neighbor whom we have seen, how can we love God whom we've not seen? We come to church and we praise God and talk about how wonderful he is and we thank him and love him. And here's someone going straight to hell and we're not going to talk to him. We don't care. In Ezekiel, God says, as I live, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 
There is not one person that God wants to go to hell. And if God doesn't want them to go to hell, then we should not want them to go to hell either. And then sometimes, like I mentioned, it's just we're just too timid. Angie and I will both admit that we hate confrontation. Some people don't mind, and I admire those people. I've got a daughter that will speak her mind and sometimes make people mad, but you know what? A lot of times she says something that needs to be said when no one else will do it. And I really admire that. She makes mistakes, but she does a lot of good things too. Me, I just sit back and keep my mouth shut. Now, I don't say anything, and Angie doesn't say anything. We let all these little things build up until one night we blow up and have a fight. And the fight wasn't about anything big. It was about all these little things that we didn't deal with because we're just too timid. We're afraid of confrontation. So there's two things. Everything else I've mentioned up to this point, you already know. There's two things that I want you to remember today. You are competent to counsel. You are able to admonish someone that needs it. Don't be afraid to do it. We talked about having the right attitude and all that kind of stuff. We already know that. It's just good common sense. Don't be afraid to talk to somebody that needs to be talked to. That's one of the things I want you to remember. The second thing is, Our attitude when someone talks to us. I did not, at the time, like Merle Fielder talking to me. And I've been talked to a lot. I've been called into the boss's office. I've been talked to a lot, and I didn't like it at the time. But in most cases, it did me good. When someone comes to talk to us, they care about us. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 5 says, Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. I'd rather a friend tell me a bad truth I didn't want to hear than for an enemy to lie to me and tell me how much he loved me. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. When someone comes to us, it's because they care about us. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20 says, When we correct someone and they, they listen, we shall save a soul from death. And that's what we all want. I don't want me to be lost. I don't want you to be lost. When someone comes to me to talk to me, it's because they care about me. And we need to remember that that other person's taking a big risk. We read in Proverbs chapter 9 where it talks about rebuking a scoffer versus a wise man. They're taking a big risk because they don't know how you're going to take it. Now, right now, we're all happy and everything. We're real friendly to each other, but we're on good terms and we're not saying bad things to each other. But I've seen a lot of people when someone that confronted them in a Christian way blew up and took it bad. When someone comes to you, they're taking a big risk. They might be ruining a friendship. They might be running someone off from church. And so they're taking a risk and we should appreciate the fact that they were willing to take that risk. So what's our attitude when someone comes to talk to us? Paul wrote to Timothy about those people, some people that were so wrapped up in sin, their conscience was seared with a hot iron. You couldn't touch their conscience anymore. When my mom was a girl, her, I don't remember which hand, one of her, her middle fingers got caught, I think, in a chain on a some piece of farm machinery and just about cut it off. And the doctor said at the time that uh, if he'd 
If he had been a boy, if she had been a boy, he probably would have just cut it off, but he went ahead and sewed it back on so she wouldn't be missing a finger. But she had no feeling in that finger, and it's kind of a knot on there. And she had no feeling. And she could take that finger, she could thump us on the head, and it hurt, but she didn't feel it. (laughs) Sometimes our conscience can be like seared with a hot iron, where when someone says something to us, it just doesn't bother us anymore. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about people that are so wrapped up in sin, they are past feeling. Is that the type of person we are when someone talks to us? I hope not. Probably wouldn't be here if, if that was true. Another way we can react is pride. If you ask me for years now, I've tried to figure out how to overcome sin. It's just not spelled out in steps one through five in the Bible. I've listened to people, I've talked to people, I've read, I've thought, I've meditated how to overcome sin. And if you want to know the secret to overcoming sin, I think I've come to the conclusion that it's confession. In James chapter 5 and verse 16, James writes, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Until that time comes where I'm willing to admit to myself and to you that I've got a problem with this, I'm not going to fix the problem. I think that's one of the first steps in uh, one of the 12 steps in AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, is to admit that you've got a problem. And sometimes we've got a problem and we want to deal with it, but we're afraid to admit it. And when someone comes to us and talks to us, that may be just the opportunity that we've been looking for. They maybe broke the ice. So many times we were just, just ready to talk to somebody. I know one Christian that is going through a hard time in their life, and they said, so many times I've sat in my bedroom and scrolled through my phone looking for somebody that I could talk to. And when somebody comes to you, they've broken the ice. They've made it easier. As hard as it may be, they've broken the ice, and there's a starting place. Now, we can, be, we can have pride and say, you know, refuse to confess, or we can let that be a starting point to something new and better. Do we want the truth or flattery? You know, talk about going to the doctor. You want the truth? You do want them to tell them something that will feel good, even if it kills you. When a friend comes to you, do you want the truth or do you want them to lie to you? Are we going to have an humble attitude? First Peter chapter 5 and verse 6, Peter says, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Paul told the Hebrews it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. James chapter 4 and verse 6 says, God resists the proud but exalts the humble. Which do we want to be in? So what's our answer going to be? Let's look at the wrong answers. Somebody comes to you and says, I hate to mention this, but I need to talk to you about your temper. I know. You know what that means? That means I know, but I don't want to talk about it. Well, you know what? The person, probably the person is not going to tell you anything. You know, you you need to quit having this affair. I know. Peter wrote... In 2 Peter chapter 3, 
Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. He calls them pure minds. They're already good people. He says, but I stir you up by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the things which were spoken. Sometimes we just, I'm not telling you anything you didn't already know this morning. Last week, the speaker didn't tell you anything you didn't know. Next week, they probably won't tell you anything you don't know. But we need to be stirred up. We need to keep it on the front of our mind. And so when someone comes and talks to you, you don't say, I know. Well, I know you know. But we need to deal with it. You know, but you're not doing anything about it. So when someone comes to, I know. That means we don't want to deal with it. We don't want to listen. That's not the right answer. Mind your own business. You are my business. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, I am. You are my business. Years ago, right after we got married, I was in the living room and Angie's in the kitchen doing something. I said, what are you doing? She said, uh, mind your own business. I said, well, you are my business. She said, well, mind me. <laughs> that didn't come out right. We are my brother's keeper. Don't tell somebody, mind your own business. You are their business. If you're sinning, you're their business. Don't judge me. First Corinthians chapter... 11, verse 31. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we were judged, we were chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Don't judge me. Well, you know what? You know, but you're not doing anything about it. I'm not judging you. I'm trying to help. Well, you're not perfect either. So, what's your point? Unless you're a perfect elder, you can't deal with anyone in the church. Unless you're a perfect parent, you can't discipline your kids. Nothing would ever happen. We would all be, it'd be terrible. Of course I'm not perfect. But I'm trying to deal with the sin here. Do you want to deal with it? Or do you want to make excuses? So, nobody's perfect. Well, are you saying that you don't care? You know, they say complacency in the fire department, and I guess other fields too, they say complacency kills. You get a firefighter, it's gone to 100 fires in the past, and they go to a house fire, and it's on fire, he gets off the engine, pulls that hose, and he charges the hose, and he goes in, and the house collapses on him and kills him. You know why? Because he was complacent. He thought this is just another fire. He didn't look to see that the fire's been burning long enough, that roof is about to collapse. He didn't see the signs that there's a basement and the floor could collapse. He didn't see that black smoke puffing in and out, ready to make a backdraft. He was complacent. He just got off and went in and got killed. Are you complacent about your sin? You don't care? What about the right answers? Someone comes to me and wants to talk to me about my temper or drug problem or not spending my money wisely and my kids not having enough to eat, I can say, you're right. I appreciate your concern. Thanks for talking to me about it. Will you pray for me? What should I do? How can I change? Can you help me? Do you know somebody that can help me? 
These are the right answers. We tell our teenage kids something. You know, you really, your anger is getting to be a problem. I know. What would you do to a teenage kid that told her, a 10 year old kid, then it'd be a teenager? You'd come down on them pretty hard, wouldn't you? Would you appreciate that kind of answer? You're helping them. You want them to grow up to be good Christian adults and they're smart alecky towards you? They're rude towards you. They ignore you. They listen and then go on and keep doing the same thing. Is that the way you want your kids treating you? If you're a boss, is that what you want an employee doing to you, just ignoring you? When a Christian comes to us, we should have the same attitude towards them that we want our, our kids to have towards us when we're trying to help them. So two things I want you to remember this morning is to talk to people when they need it in the right way, of course, at the right time. And when someone wants to talk to us, don't give them any of those smart-alecky, standoffish, put-down answers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul was writing concerning this problem that he had wrote to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 about how to deal with a sinning brother. And they dealt with it correctly. And Paul says when he's writing to him a second time, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 9, Now rejoice, not that you were made sorry, not that I hurt you, not that I had to say something you didn't like, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us and nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death." For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. When Paul pointed out this problem, they got mad about it. They were zealous about fixing it. And they dealt with it and fixed it. When someone comes to us, we should have those same desires to want to fix the problem. But Paul here talks about godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow fixes a problem. Worldly sorrow leads to death. And as an example of this, I want you to think about Judas and Peter. I truly think that when Judas sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, he had seen all those miracles. And he thought that Jesus maybe would just strike them dead and walk away. And here he would have 30 pieces of silver and Jesus would be saved. But when he saw that that's not what happened, he had worldly sorrow and he went out and hung himself. Peter, who just a few short hours before says, said, I will follow you to the ends of the earth. I will never deny you. Sat there and lied. And not only that, he cussed three times. And Jesus was back there and could see him. And it said after the third time, Jesus looked at him. And he saw Jesus looking at him. And he went out with Judas and hung himself too. No. He repented. And if I ask you who your favorite apostle was, it'd probably either be Paul or Peter. Because Peter did and said a lot of dumb things. And we love him because he reminds us of ourselves. 
Judas had worldly sorrow. The Bible says, Woe to him would have been better if he had never been born. Peter had godly sorrow. When someone comes to us, we need to have the godly sorrow, deal with the problem, and get rid of it rather than cause bigger problems or maybe be lost. When Nathan came to uh, David and David realized what he did, I believe the next words out of his mouth after Nathan quit talking was, I have sinned against the Lord. When someone talks to us and they're right, we need to say, you're right, let's deal with the problem. Remember, talk to people when they need it. When someone talks to you, listen. We always offer a song, what we call a song of invitation. You don't have to come up here. You don't have to make a public confession. You can sit right there and think, I need to change. Today I'm going to do it. Heard a commercial on the radio about an addiction center. It says the addict has three choices. Death or prison or getting over it. We have two choices. Either be saved or lost. Choose today to be saved while we sing this song.